So good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to our panel, Allyship, A Call to Action. Uh, my name is Garrett Lee. Uh, I'm a board member uh, for the Asian American Lawyers Association of Massachusetts. Uh, very quickly, uh, some big thank yous uh, to my fellow alum directors, Jason Chan, Lucy Sun, and Emily C. Thank you for all of the hard work and amazing ideas. Uh, this panel would not have come together uh, if not for uh, you guys. Also, Alum President uh, Leslie Sue, thank you for all of your help as always. Uh, and thank you to all the other organizations that, that co-sponsored this event as well. There were quite a few of them, so thank you. So um, the goal of this panel uh, is really to explore three, you know, really related but different topics. Uh, one, uh, we're gonna start with a little exploration of the historical social relationship uh, between uh, Asian communities and, and the black communities here in the US, uh, the commonalities with their struggle, differences. Um, two, bringing it back to law, because we're lawyers here, um, what's going on right now here in Massachusetts and in Boston with regard to disparities in the criminal justice system. And three, Asian attorneys, for Asian attorneys and all in particular, what can we do to be allies? How can we use our skills uh, and team up with the black community and attorneys to make this really a better situation for all? So with three amazing speakers here today, uh, I don't wanna have you guys hear uh, me talk that much longer. So I'd like to just take a minute um, to have the speakers introduce themselves uh, and just a few words about you and your work. And I'm just gonna go clockwise as I see it on my screen. So um, Professor Robert Chang, um, would you introduce yourself? Hi, so I'm Robert Chang. I teach at Seattle University School of Law. I've been teaching for law for 28 years. I moved to Seattle University uh, 12 years ago to start the Fred T. Kormasu Center for Law and Equality. Um, Professor Kirishige, you're next in the clock. Hi, I'm Scott uh, Kurashige. I am a professor and chair in the Department of Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies at Texas Christian University. Uh, I also um, am president of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Foundation, uh, which is based in Detroit. And DA Rollins? I'm Rachel Rollins. I am not a professor. I'm the elected district attorney in Suffolk County, which is Boston, Chelsea, Winthrop, and Revere. And I'm a attorney by trade uh, who has been a prosecutor, a criminal defense lawyer, and done a lot of administrative work uh, as well. Well, thank you all for being here. We're really lucky to have you. Um, so before we really get started talking about uh, allyship, the theme of this panel going forward, we need some historical context. Uh, what I'm gonna do is pose uh, some questions that are geared towards uh, a particular speaker but the other panelists should feel free to chime in with their thoughts uh, as well. Um, Professor Kirishige, I understand that your work focuses on um, dynamics between the Asian and Black communities in specific cities and specific time periods. My questions are definitely gonna be too broad, but, but based on the scope of your study, socially, what are these two groups the Asian community and the Black community have in common with regard to their social experiences? So, uh, right, to paint with a very broad brush. Right. Partially, it, it means looking at how these uh, forms of racialization, uh, which are not independent of each other, but are actually interdependent, right, have 
have formed historically. So if you look back before World War II, right, this is really a period of segregation throughout the country. We associate, you know, Jim Crow uh, um, system with the South, but clearly there were all types of forms of legalized segregation and housing and employment um, uh, and other aspects of society that existed all throughout the country, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we know about how separate but equal operated uh, for African-Americans and how uh, practices like restrictive covenants um, and, uh, you know, employment discrimination created separate but equal, separate but equal, and sometimes more likely separate and unequal, right, um, situations for blacks and whites, where I grew up in Los Angeles, clearly Boston, Detroit, uh, other major cities. Um, for Asian Americans in that same period, uh, oftentimes it was these same practices that excluded people from jobs um, and housing. But uh, it was also heavily on the basis of uh, the ban on immigration that Asians were treated unequally, uh, the ban on naturalized citizenship that led Asians uh, to be treated equally, and the sort of the extension of that uh, denial of citizenship or exclusion really uh, carried over to the, the second generation uh, as well. Even though they had voting rights and they had citizenship rights, of course, they could be taken away or disregarded as happened with um, you know, my family uh, during World War II when Japanese Americans were put in concentration camps. Right? So you know, I think when you look before World War II, both communities are historically and relatively disenfranchised. Um, there's a common sense of shared uh, oppression. Uh, there's not a lot of common activity at the level of, you know, uh, of organization, but there is sort of in, at the neighborhood level, a lot of commonalities as to where, particularly on the West Coast, uh, where, you know, Asian and black people would be allowed to live because they couldn't live in most of the spaces where white people, you know, and, and wealthy people live. Right? I think World War II really changes things quite a bit because uh, you start to have, you know, uh, with Executive Order 8802 after the March on Washington, the first March on Washington uh, uh, during, during World War II uh, under A. Philip Randolph's leadership, you have the desegregation of the uh, defense factories during World War II. You start to have uh, things like Fair Employment Practices Commission, you know, interracial progress committees. You really start to have a drive towards integration you know, uh, uh, anti-miscegenation laws get outlawed, um, the segregation of the military, right, gets, gets uh, abolished by Truman after the war. So you begin to start to have this process of integration, right? And I think the important thing to realize, you know, by the 1960s, as you start to see the rebellions, concentrated poverty, ghettoization, rampant police brutality, we start to see that, that this country, you know, as, as Dr. King was pointing out, was not was not fulfilling, right, its promise of, of equality for all, of opportunity for all. As Dr. King said in the same I Have a Dream speech, you know, uh, the check was returned <laughs> to African-American mark insufficient funds, right, from, from the federal government. And so it's really at that point that this idea of, uh, of promoting racial tolerance, right, embracing the idea that, that we've achieved racial equality with, in, in, in rhetoric, but without actually seeing it happen in practice. It's at that moment when this idea of Asian Americans as a model minority really starts to stand up. That this idea that equality is something that 
individuals who work hard, who respect authority, who don't protest, you know, who don't riot. Um, these are the people that are, that are successful in America, right? And this stereotype, which can be put on any individual person of color, I mean, we saw a whole bunch of people stand up in defense of Trump's idea of law and order who were not white, you know, uh, the Republic National Convention. But that gets projected onto Japanese Americans and, and Asian Americans more broadly as a sort of racial trait during the 1960s in response to, really in response to the protest uh, coming out of the Black Power Movement uh, and, the, and the more uh, widespread unrest linked to the urban violence. So we've really been living in the aftermath of, of that period ever since. That we're a nation that at its core believes that, you know, that it's rooted in uh, equality and justice for all, that this is the image of America that, that has populated you know, around the world and, and, and built up strength for uh, American leadership. And yet, of course, it's always been so contradictory or in the eyes of many hypocritical, right? And so, you know, again, it is this idea that uh, uh, in the eyes of the, the sort of dominant culture that the way to preserve the myth of racial equality is to, is to show that Asian Americans have made it as a model minority, which the, the model minority myth is not about Asians themselves. It's really a myth uh, to uphold the myth of American exceptionalism, the myth of you know, American progress, uh, and of course, all these to reinforce all these negative anti-black stereotypes, right, towards African Americans, uh, towards, you know, Ronald Reagan talked about the welfare queens, and, you know, uh, again, we can go on all day if I start talking about all the stereotypes that the current uh, uh, occupant of the White House uses, right? So that's, I think, a general framework for understanding why there's both a historical commonality of experience, but why there's been this really uh, sharp ideological attempt to drive a wedge between the group, two groups. And sometimes you see that happen, you know, materialize in terms of actual on the ground tension or conflict. And sometimes you see the exact opposite that people seeing through those, seeing through those, you know, uh, um, seeing through those ideological uh, uh, games and, and going out of their way to promote solidarity. Absolutely. That's a great answer. Um, and you mentioned, um, you know, a wedge between uh, these groups that, you know, maybe intentionally created. I don't know, but can you, can, you, can you talk a little bit, you know, about these two groups, you know, in terms of, has there been any direct conflict uh, between them? Can you, can you talk about themes like that? Yeah, you know, I think when we talk about conflict, we need to distinguish between what is really put forward as this kind of ideological conflict that, uh, Asian Americans are honorary whites or model minorities, right? Um, versus the actual tensions that actually surface on the ground, which may be, you know, re related to political beliefs or ideological beliefs, or may just be, you know, uh, people in neighborhoods getting into fights or conflicts or, or, or people fighting over resources, right? Um, that take on a racialized representation, but actually rooted in, you know, uh, material conflicts or inequalities. Um, one example is, uh, remember, you know, we had an election, what was it now, 12 years ago, um, when Obama rose, you know, as the, the uh, most prominent, you know, black uh, candidate for, for the White House ever, um, and he was on the cusp of maybe nailing it down uh, when California had its primary that year, um, 
And the strangest thing happened, right? He actually won overwhelmingly, as, as was expected, most of the black vote. He actually did very, very well compared to Hillary Clinton with white voters, which should have meant he should have won very easily. And yet, because Hillary Clinton got so many Asian and Latinx voters in that primary, she actually won quite comfortably. And so there was this whole, again, argument thrown out there for opportunistic purpose saying, well, it must be that, you know, Asian and Latinx voters will never support a black candidate, right? And that they really identify more with whites and, you know, the mainstream and assimilation. And of course that proved absolutely untrue, you know, in the general uh, election, they went overwhelmingly for Obama. He won, he was reelected with even greater support from blacks, Latinx and, and Asian American voters in, in 2012. So, you know, again, there, part of it, the reason is, you know, almost nobody in their formal education learns anything really substantive about Asian American or African American history, right? We've all been sanitized to receive. I mean, I, for instance, I never got critical race theory when I was in high school. I don't know. Apparently today there are people that think every, every, everybody's uh, being, you know, forced uh, to, to take critical race theory classes in order to graduate. I didn't get that. Professor, I, I know people that had to see Watchmen to learn about Tulsa. Oh. Right? Like, which by the way, if you haven't watched Watchmen, it's great watching. Great story. Um, and that has an Asian component too. We could talk about it later. Um, but the reality is most people go upon um, uh, stereotypes and superficial knowledge rather than the type of deep learning that we try to do in, in the field of ethnic study, which is why it was created, to, to correct the misinformation and miseducation that people get uh, through the rest of their uh, formal education. And so, you know, it is not, unfortunately, it means we have to learn much more again about these sort of ideological discourses and superficial stereotypes, you know, uh, we have to sort of, uh, we have to uneducate ourselves, right, of those uh, stereotypes in order to get at, you know, the actual histories, which are filled with all types of tensions and contradictions, so the whole history is, you know, it's not one smooth linear path towards progress, but we can look at that much more clearly once we realize that what we've mostly digested through the mainstream media, you know, uh, are these very, very superficial uh, images that are largely rooted again in, in, in stereotypes. The people making them have never taken any classes in Asian American or black history, usually. Thanks for that. So I had one question um, that I set aside because I want to talk a little bit about um, Grace Lee Boggs, who I understand uh, you worked very closely with um, and when I was at the University of Michigan, Professor uh, Kirishige was one of my professors and I got to meet, uh, meet Grace Lee Boggs through his class. Can you tell us a little bit about her, about her life and what she did for the Asian and black communities in, in the Detroit area? Thank you. Um, and there's a lot I could say about her, but I'm gonna mostly say for people that wanna know more about her life, you know, she's written books, I wrote a book with her and there's a documentary made about her life called American Revolutionary. Today's a really significant day because it's actually the fifth anniversary of her passing in 2015. Uh, she actually lived a hundred years and a hundred days. Uh, so what an incredible life. And up till really the age of 99, she was still active, uh, giving speeches and involved in organizing meetings. Uh, and the thing most people know about Grace Lee Boggs is she, as an American-born um, Chinese woman, spent almost her entire adult life as a radical activist working within the Black community. Uh, 
with really prominent figures like CLR James and then her partner, life partner for 40 years, James Fox, but also with all types of youth and artists and workers, right, um, and feminists, really at the grassroots level. She wasn't someone who sought out fame or attention. Um, and in fact, when I met her, she was largely an unknown figure, even within people in Asian American studies um, and Asian American activists. She had a more prominent uh, profile uh, in Detroit. But what's significant, I think, about her is that, again, someone who was almost unknown uh, to the world, you know, a uh, little over 20 years ago, has now become a real icon, particularly for, for Asian Americans, but really for a much broader set of people uh, who care about social justice. She's one of the icons that was held up, you know, as a source of inspiration for the Women's March, for instance. There's even a movie, a fictional movie, I got to point that that was made where Barack Obama, uh, is uh, it's about Barack Obama in college, who's con he's confused about his racial identity and how he fits into America when he's half white, half black, goes to uh, Columbia University and Ivy League school, but then plays basketball, you know, uh, in Harlem, uh, in, in the black community. And the way he realizes he shouldn't be confused, that he's actually uh, uh, a symbol of the future of this country is he meets James and Grace Lee Fox <laughs> in this movie called Barry on Netflix. And again, that's fictional, but the fact that people now see Grace Lee Boggs and her relationship with James Boggs, a black radical from the Jim Crow South, who was an auto worker, never got to go to college or get an advanced degree, but became one of the most prominent theorists, you know, in the world during the black power movement. The fact that these people no longer are people seen as exceptional or marginal, you know, or on the fringe of society, but are seen as role models for more and more people who comprise the emerging majority of Americans, right? I think that's the real significance of her life, that, uh, that not only does she represent something demographically, but she has someone who never allowed, who never allowed the, the bleak reality or the, the dark suffering that, that she or others experienced around her to prevent her from dreaming or taking responsibility for creating a new and better world. I think that's really what's significant about Grace Lee Fox today and how anytime we talk about conflict, uh, whether it's over race, whether it's over class, whether it's over religion or an election, the reality is um, it's not simply about winning the conflict in front of us or even you know worrying about losing the conflict in front of us. It's about what are we doing for the long-term struggle, right? to create a new way in which we can live together under relations that are not based upon that type of conflict or exploitation um, or violence that, that have uh, pitted us against each other historically. Thanks. Um, yeah, no, if, if you're on the panel and, and you're not familiar with Grace Lee Boggs, I, I urge you to look into her. She's just a fascinating historical figure. Uh, Professor, one last question for you before I start picking on someone else, but, um, your, your recent work, um, Neighbors in the Hood, addresses how Asian American activists have been scapegoats to the devastation of predominantly uh, African American cities and urban communities. Uh, you mentioned that in response, and I, I think I took this from a, uh, one of your profiles, um, Asians have developed structural analyses that critique anti-Blackness while fostering a multiracial vision of social justice and coalition building. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, there have been these real tragic incidents that have happened, you know, in urban communities uh, on the East Coast, 
uh, on the West Coast. You know, the one that uh, I, I really lived through uh, in 1992 when, when I was in LA was the LA uprising, right? Which was triggered uh, by the acquittal of the four officers who beat Rodney King, right? But really turned into um, both on the ground and in the media spectacle, this this sort of warfare cultural clash between you know African Americans and, and, and Korean Americans. And again, there was some real tension. Uh, there was a incident where a black teenager, Latasha Harlins, was killed uh, by a Korean immigrant merchant, uh, Sun Ja Du. Um, you know, she was convicted of, of manslaughter, but then she was given a sentence where basically, you know, she would, you know, like the killers of Vincent Chin, who a lot of Asian Americans know, would basically walk, right? And so there was a lot of resentment there. And the question is, again, how do we see, you know, ways to de-escalate and resolve tensions in a way that promote, you know, transformative justice, but also see that one incident and one individual act uh, does not represent, you know, uh, a response to the structural problems underlying, right? So how do we begin to look, right? When we're looking at, you know, people concerned about how they're treated at liquor stores and people deserve respect how they're treated, but how do we look at, you know, a broader structural response for the types of jobs people should have and the type of work that people should have independent of just needing to, you know, make a living for someone, the type of work um, and housing and community that people should have for their sense of dignity and justice, right? In fact, the Bloods and Crips came together and came up with the whole plan, you know, to transform South Central LA. We really, we should be going back and looking at documents like that now, right? So there's a way in which, you know, again, if if people, if, if the Bloods and Crips could have came together in that moment, certainly you could say that, you know, Blacks and Asians can can find some ways to find commonality beyond the sort of, you know, cultural class that, that that's presented. So in these stereotypical representations. Absolutely. Um, so I, I thank you so much for all of those answers. They were, they were great. Um, I want to move on to the next uh, related topic, which is uh, bringing it back to us lawyers, uh, a focus on our criminal justice system uh, here in Suffolk County and in Massachusetts and how any you know, racial disparities are being addressed. Um, DA Rollins, we're so fortunate to have you here. Uh, and I'm going to ask you some questions. So. Uh, Implicit bias or just bias exists everywhere, uh, but if it exists in certain sectors, uh, it can have profound effects on certain populations. Um, some of you are probably reading today about uh, Francis Choi uh, in, in that whole situation. So, but in Boston, you know, perhaps Massachusetts as a whole, and your professional opinion, uh, are there sentencing disparities uh, for the Black and Asian communities and and you can take them separately if you want to. Um, yeah, so I would, I would just add before we go there just how um, interesting I find this conversation. And I love that the professor, professor mentioned uh, Latasha Harlins and that 13 days after Rodney King, that occurred. Um, and then, you know, some of the movies in the black community, Menace to Society came out two years after that incident. And believe me, I'm not saying Menace to Society is anything that anyone needs to watch or see, but sort of perpetuating those stereotypes. One of a, a movie at the time where one of the individuals kills actually a Korean store owner in that movie back. Um, one of the other things most recently I think that's happened with our community is the affirmative action litigation at Harvard, where we've been sort of pitted against each other as like, Absolutely. you know, 
model minority and like not model minority. And we need to make sure we're looking at all the things that we have in common with each other. Um, and we're never, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but I think we can't get distracted by people that are trying to change the narrative because if we're powerful and we're supportive of each other, um, we are, we are so much more powerful. So let me just start by saying that, um, you know, I think disparities in the criminal legal system, of course there are. Uh, Chief Justice Gantz, uh, unfortunately, just passed away a few weeks ago, um, and four years prior to that, it uh, allowed Harvard Law School, School to commission a study on racial disparities. Um, as we were waiting for the results of this study, there has been one Asian American in the 328-year history of our Supreme Judicial Court, one, albeit fantastic, Asian American Justice uh, Duffley, who was one um, on our Supreme Judicial Court. We have had um, 10 women of any type and three black people, generally speaking, um, overwhelmingly prosecutors. So, you know, when we think about uh, Chief Justice Gantz was the first Jewish Chief Justice in the history of our Supreme Judicial Court, we have to look at the fact that other is actually no longer other. You know, we're a majority minority, um, you know, city here in Boston. And although maybe the crimes that our communities are um, engaging in or the harm that we might receive from our government, you know, I was just at an event September 11th um, where we talked about Southeast Asian deportations, right? The same way that there is the model minority and honorary white, there's the you know, there's one story told by this country about um, people who get deported. It is not just Latinx people that are getting deported. There are unfortunately, you know, black people who are from Haiti, Africa, you know, other places. And there's a very large, unfortunately, Southeast Asian population that has the same terror rained down upon them based on some of the ICE policies we have. We have to stop you know, like, I, I love what you said, the sort of superficial stereotypes. No one's taking the time to look quicker than like, what did my phone just say? All right, I'm done. Right, right. No, you need to stop and read the entire article. This isn't the Metro where you just read eight words. I want us to dig a little bit deeper. So the numbers are bad when it comes to, um, you know, the percentage of the black community total in Massachusetts as compared to the percentage of the black community that is incarcerated in Massachusetts. When you look at the percentages, if, if I make up 17% of the population, I should make up about 17% of the incarcerated population. It shouldn't be 17% of the total population, 60% of the incarcerated population. And I know there might be people watching this saying, well, then just stop committing crimes. Okay. You know, I will hear you, but I can tell you as the chief law enforcement officer in Suffolk County, if I sent my detectives to follow anyone on this call and for five days straight, 24 hours a day, we followed you and pulled you over. Anytime you went over a dotted line, you ran a red light, you, we went through your trash, we pulled all of your information on your computer, I could charge you and your family easily with at least 15 crimes. And whether you could afford to get out of that situation is a different story. But in the black community, what we're seeing, Garrett, unfortunately, is over-policing in the things that we don't want you over-policing us in. So real example, 
if there is an uptick in arrests and trespass, um, disturbing the peace, uh, you know, other annoyances for sure, but nonviolent, non-serious crimes, but I have 1,367 unsolved homicides, leave me alone about the trespasses, please, and start focusing your attention on the things that are killing us and harming us. So for me, I'm trying to have better conversations with my law enforcement partners. And remember, Garrett, even though I ran as a progressive, like not us versus them, I'm now a them, right? I went from like being in the community talking about we need representation and why doesn't anyone look like us in the police department, in the probation department, in the trial courts, in the DA's offices. And then I won and I'm now standing with all these people and I'm like, geez, we got a lot of work to do, right? Like I can't be yelling about it. I now have to change from the inside. Um, I think implicit bias is very, very real. And what I wanna make sure I, people hear me say today is, if I get an A plus in black issues and women issues and a D minus in like LGBTQ issues and an F in Asian, like we all have work to do. This isn't just a white problem. This is all of us have implicit biases because we've all been living here watching the same, you know, I'm 49, so I watched some of the things I watched as a child, and I'm like, how did this get on TV? This is the most racist, it's not funny, but horrible things that I've watched as a child growing up, thinking this is amazing. We have all of that built into our psyche now that we have to undo, and we have to be honest with the fact that maybe we don't fully understand each other, but show up in support when we can. So I will end with, I was proud to stand on March 13th with um, at a press conference with the Asian American community about the horrible uptick in um, hate, you know, and not just speech, but actual acts as a result of the ignorance of the president of our United States who's refusing to call COVID-19 by the name that it is. And how much those words um, have, in, you know, impacted not only the, the um, the economics of our wonderful, you know, different neighborhoods and restaurants and business owners, but also the terror that's been rained down on people um, just living their lives, right? And people feeling like they have no, they have every, re every ability to scream hate at people. So I was very proud to stand there only to say, if you are spewing hate in Suffolk County, you will be held accountable. And whether it's by me criminally or whether I am calling my good friend, the attorney general and parents hear me, I will ask that you're held responsible for your children's behavior. If you're teaching them hate at home, you don't get to hide behind your 15 year old. If hate happens in Suffolk County, we stand up for each other and make sure it doesn't any longer. Absolutely, thanks so much. Um, what steps, um, can be taken or have been taken in your office, uh, DA Rollins, to address this implicit bias that exists in everyone, in, in, in assistant district attorneys and everyone. Sure, so what we do is not only have we um, been really fortunate, the Vera Institute is coming in, they're gonna do a top to bottom um, investigation of my office um, and I'm two years old now almost. So, you know, it's easy for me to say like, oh, that happened before I got here in your first month. I've been here for two years. So we gotta make sure we are looking 
Um, I hold myself accountable. What does my senior executive leadership team look like, right? Um, I inherited an exceptional executive team um, where the top 11 people were brilliant, but literally 100% white, 80% male. They were brilliant lawyers. They were brilliant. That, that's, but I said, I want brilliance always, but I also want a reflection of Suffolk County. And what I'm proud of is right now we have 55% women. We have um, uh, two people that are fluent in multiple languages, um, Haitian Creole, um, as, as well as Mandarin Chinese. Um, we have my, my chief of staff is a woman of color, uh, Asian woman. My head of community engagement is a black man. Uh, my number second assistant, so I have a first assistant, second assistant, um, black man. We need to be better with LGBTQ uh, numbers. We need to be better with Latinx numbers, but we are holding ourselves accountable. So that's the first way we do it is not just say like, we're working on it. We are honest about our numbers. We say what we think we're doing well at and what we aren't. And I'm very good at the top. I believe, you know, like we can set our policies. My staff, my 350 people, I have to be far better, right? Not just with my admins, my victim witness advocates and investigators, but my assistant district attorneys. So we have Vera coming in. And then I speak to my staff all the times about issues of race. Every single opportunity I get, um, I have made sure that we are really involved with our diversity and inclusion and equity group. Um, to educate ourselves about different things. And then every new ADA assistant district attorney has to not only visit a jail, but we have panels of um, judges where we make sure there is a, you know, really diverse panel of judges. We had an exceptional lawyer in our office in the homicide unit, Kat Ham, who is now a municipal uh, a BMC judge. We pull her back as often as we can to speak to our staff just about judges, we have criminal defense lawyers, survivors, returning citizens. I want them as culturally competent as possible. And then I show up myself to a lot of things in different communities to make sure I'm, I'm remaining um, relevant and, um, and you know, up, to, up to date uh, on what's happening with my finger literally on the pulse of what's happening in these communities. One of the questions that I had written down um, was what changes in your office um, are you most proud of since becoming Suffolk County DA? I will say the diverse, diversification of your office sounds pretty great to me, but why don't you tell me what you're most proud of? So I think what I'm most proud of is after, you know, things like right after the meeting we had with um, the Asian American Resource Workshop and Asian Outreach Unit at Greater Boston Legal Services, I, I was asked on the Zoom panel, DA Rollins, we have a case where somebody's going to be deported, um, South Asian individual who's going to be deported. Will you help us look at this case? It is the collateral consequences are so extreme with respect to deportation and what the crime was. So this is what my children do. They know I'm busy. Somebody's asking to drink their fifth juice box. Okay. I love you. Okay, thank you. You guys don't have children yet, please, if you haven't. Okay. I do. So anyways, what was wonderful was I was able to say, not only because I was put on the spot, you bet, send that to us. Um, I talked about this as a candidate, you know, 
there are extreme collateral consequences for people uh, that have, you know, uh, various, um, you know, stature regarding being in this country. And we were able to assist that individual. So we got a really nice email back saying, thank you so much. They are not being deported. They have been held accountable and now they can move on with their life here, right? So I'm proud of the fact that I believe we have opened the door to the community to feel like this DA's office does not just prosecute. Is that something we do? Of course it is. Um, but I also want to be looked at as a resource, right? As something where we don't only have one tool in our toolbox that says jail, just one huge tool and we know that that has significant impacts on people with respect to their wealth. You know, that can have hundreds, if not thousands of collateral consequences, um, but also with respect to their, their status here in this country, breaking up families, et cetera. So I'm proud of, I would say most, not only what our senior leadership team looks like, but that we now have open communication with people that have felt before that this office did nothing but harm, that we are now working really hard to, to heal. Uh, I have one last question for you as I segue into the next topic, uh, DA Rollins. What do you think local attorneys that are part of the affinity groups, like so many of us that are here today, uh, what, can, what can we do to be an effective ally to the diversification and the black community in particular here? Yeah, so when I was the president of the Mass Black Lawyers Association, my dear friend, exceptional lawyer that I had worked with at Bingham McCutcheon, Sarah Kim, was the president of Alum at the time. And what I think we did really well was minorities used to feel like we had to fight each other for the one piece of pie, right? So I'm gonna punch, you know, Maha, the Mass Association of Hispanic Attorneys, Alum, the LGBTQ bar, because I want black pie, right? Whereas it's like, there's enough pie for all of us, right? Let's fight for all of us to get a piece of pie instead of fighting each other. When we stand together united, we get more, right? And even if our issues might not all be the same, let's at least agree on what we agree on. And I think Sarah did a really good job of, and it wasn't even reaching across you know, the V or, you know, uh, the aisle, but it was just, we're so myopically focused on the harm that our community has. And believe me, we've each had really significant harms in our community, but let's spend 50% of the time looking at that and 50% of the time saying, okay, now what can we do affinity bar groups together to stand and support, right? Know your rights. Um, we should all know our rights and it shouldn't just be why are we only dealing about issues of color? Like, we are brilliant. We have two brilliant professors here. I love that this is a, you know, an alum event, but I want to make sure when I'm being asked to speak on panels nationally, I don't want to talk about Black issues anymore. I want to be an expert in criminal legal issues, period. And I can add the flavor of the fact that I happen to be a woman and I happen to have some melanin. We could talk about that at the end, but these two brilliant men here should be talking about what they're you know, exceptional at. And if that is critical race theory and other things, that's fine. But I think we have to be better at not just focusing, of course, Alam should be focusing on Asian, you know, Asian issues. And so MAHA, Mass Association of Hispanic Attorneys should be doing that as well. But let's see where there is commonality with us. That's what I'd ask us to do a little bit better.
So I want to make sure we have enough time um, for our next very important topic. Here we have uh, with us Professor Robert Chang, um, who's with the Korematsu Center um, for Law and Equality at Seattle University uh, School of Law. Professor, to start with, can you tell us a little bit about the mission, the purpose, and, and the recent work at the Korematsu Center? Sure. So, um, simply put, uh, you know, <clears throat> where where our mission is to advance the legacy of, of Fred Korematsu, uh, and we do it through education, uh, we do it through uh, research, and we do it through advocacy, uh, and. You know, so it was so interesting hearing uh, D.A. Rollins and Professor Kurashige. Um, you know, so D.A. Rollins talks about, well, you don't just read the headline or the first paragraph, uh, you read to the end of the article. Uh, and in some ways, that's what Professor Kurashige is, is talking about in terms of, you know, reading to the end of the article means reading the history of the, this country uh, from, from, you know, when, <laughs> before, before uh, its, you know, founding, uh, and, and to better understand how we're set up so that, uh, as D.A. Rollins said, well, so, you know, one group is go going to want, like, this is the black pie, right? You know, like piece of pie. It's like, you know, you, you can't, this is my, ours, you can't have any of this. But it's, a it's, it's, it's set up in some ways because uh, we're told that there's just only that one piece of pie that all of us have to fight over, the, 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 the crumbs. Um, and, but it's where that, that, understanding of that history becomes so important. Uh, and so, you know, it's uh, from Fred, it's like, how do you, how do you uh, stand for not just yourself? Well, part of it is seeing uh, yourself in, in others. Um, so for Asian Americans, I think there's a particular challenge in part because of the, the success of Asian exclusion. You know, so Professor Kurashige's family has been here for generations. My family was not. My, my family came in 1970. We came after the civil rights struggles. And so for many Asian Americans, uh, because so many have a more recent immigration story, immigration history, uh, sometimes we're not, we don't always feel that we're part of that story. And in some ways that's where ethnic studies become so important, Asian American studies become so important because it tells a different story, it tells a different history. And so then if we think about this story that, that we need to, to appreciate, well, it's one where it's not just about what happens to Japanese Americans because what happens, happened to Japanese Americans depended on what happened to South Asians. Uh, it depends on what happened to Chinese immigrants before that. It's a longer history, the commonalities, uh, and in some ways from seeing those commonalities, that we also see the commonalities with regard to the treatment of other people of color, of African-Americans, Native Americans, Latinas and Latinos. Uh, and it's really from that uh, that we draw, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the work that we do, we're very mindful in terms of working in coalitions. Uh, we're very mindful in terms of standing with those who are not like us. And so, you know, the thousands of hours I did in the case in Arizona, so I, I had the good fortune of being co-counsel to a case in Arizona where uh, Arizona had passed a statute that was used to terminate the Mexican-American Studies program. Um, you know, I became co-counsel, took it to the Ninth Circuit, went back to trial, worked with lots of great attorneys on that. But it's where the Fred Korematsu Center in Seattle is co-counsel to a case in Arizona. Uh, and for us, it was so important because how can we stand aside when Pan-Asian Studies is not challenged in, in Arizona? 
It's like, so, okay, it's okay for Asian American stories in history to be taught to people who look like me, but it's not okay for Mexican American stories and Mexican American history to be taught to people who don't look like me. Although in some ways, you know, phenotypically, it's like, I don't know, I could pass sometimes for, for Latinx. And I could also imagine a different history that would have placed my family into Mexico before coming to the United States. There's so many different ways uh, that, that identity is, is fluid and, and flexible. Uh, and so it's like when we do the cases, the impact cases that we do in Alaska on behalf of Native Alaskan foster children representing tribes, it's trying to present this profile uh, that uh, the way to, to work together with other groups is to show up. Uh, that's how you foster relationships of, of, of trust, uh, by showing up. And so, you know, our most recent uh, impact case uh, we're co-counsel working with uh, Perkins Coie and ACLU of Washington, and we're representing Black Lives Matter, Seattle King County, uh, and also several individuals who sued the city of Seattle for the use of uh, crowd control weapons against protesters. Uh, and so it's by showing up, it's by being there, uh, that it's not just about me, it's not just about people who look like me, standing for those who don't look like me, uh, that together we create the relationships of trust uh, that eventually uh, I think will make a difference. Thanks so much for that. That's great. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I, I understand that some of the, the recent work you've done um, is also an analysis of the disparities of the criminal justice system in, in the state of Washington. Um, and there was a task force involved with that. Can you tell us about how that study and how that task force came to be? Sure, so this was about nine and a half years ago and <clears throat> there was a, a sitting uh, state Supreme Court justice, Washington Supreme Court justice, who uh, trying to account for black uh, disproportionality in incarceration said, well, it's because blacks commit more crimes. Um, it took the courage of an African-American woman uh, staff member who then uh, told the Seattle Times the story uh, and it created this huge um, uproar, uh, rightfully so. Uh, and what it did is, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it endangered uh, public trust in, in the system. If you have a state Supreme Court justice who espouses views like this. And so a friend of mine, uh, then Judge uh, Stephen Gonzalez, who's now a justice on that court, reached out to me and said, we should get some people together to talk about this uh, and not just do a knee-jerk reaction and just say, hey, you know, Justice, you're wrong, but to actually like back it up with studies, if, if, if the studies support it, that there is in fact discrimination that occurs at different points in the criminal justice system, uh, from policing to prosecution to sentencing and, and post-incarceration uh, and so if, there, if we find that these things are, are there, we need to, to surface them uh, so that people are not left with this sense, this notion, well, okay, uh, as Dave Rollins said, you know, it's like, just stop committing crimes. That's how you keep, you know, away from just disproportionality. We know that that's not it. Um, and so uh, we pulled together academics, uh, uh, prosecutors, the defense bar, community organizations, judges, uh, and we met and then we produced a report on race and Washington's uh, criminal justice system. Uh, and it was intent, and our conclusions uh, may not be surprising. Uh, it was that uh, you, that a very large 
percentage of the disproportionality observed in incarceration could not be chalked up to just differences in crime commission, that it was actually disparity uh, that was being produced at different points in criminal processing. Uh, and we wanted everybody to examine their own practices. We also made recommendations um, and it was intended to seed um, persistent education and persistent advocacy. And I think that that's what we've been doing in Washington state. I think that's why you get things like uh, the Washington State Supreme Court going away from McCleskey versus Kemp and saying, oh, statistical uh, disparities in uh, death penalty between black uh, defendants and, and white defendants, well, that actually can lead to it being cruel punishment under Washington State Constitution. It leads to things like jury selection being changed so that all of a sudden the state Supreme Court says, we don't need to go with Batson. Batson first only addresses intentional discrimination. It doesn't even get to implicit bias or unconscious discrimination. So we need to change the test and we have the authority to do so. Uh, there's a recent California Law Review article by a student that said that a lot of these changes that we're observing um, in Washington state actually goes back to that original task force. And I so appreciate it because, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes. How do you know what you're doing has any effect or, or impact, you know, especially for scholars, uh, if you're just, you know, doing a study or writing an article. Um, but, you know, we were also engaged in uh, trying to educate the judiciary and others about the operation of implicit bias. And I think that's how things change. We had always intended to do a 10-year update because the 10-year update is going to be next year. And then George Floyd happened. Uh, and so then what we did is we launched the task force and it's task force 2.0. Uh, and we have at our first general meeting a month ago or three weeks ago, 15 uh, people at that meeting. We had, uh, it was as diverse as the Washington Association of Prosecuting Attorneys, uh, several prosecuting attorney offices, the electeds, uh, they have their offices formally join our task force. We have the three law schools that are represented. We have a number of different community organizations. And so we're getting ready to look at, well, okay, so we saw what was happening 10 years ago. And we had some ideas about what caused it. And so then, you know, we're looking at, well, where are we now? Um, and if we have made improvements, I want to be able to tell the story about, well, why do we think we have see these improvements? So that then we can say, okay, are you doing these things? And if you're not, you should be doing these things because we've just documented that these things work. And then in the places where there have not been improvements, to try to think about, well, what is keeping us from getting there? Um, because I, you know, I don't have the, the final numbers yet in terms of comparing uh, disproportionality in incarceration now as to what it was in, in 2010. I think it's gonna be better, um, but I think it's still gonna be bad. Uh, and because it's, it's bad, uh, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, and so, you know, just really thinking concretely about one, reaching the different audiences. So the judiciary, the legislature, the executive, uh, and then also just really coming up with concrete things. Like one of the things where in some ways there's real common interest uh, is to get rid of criminalization of what's driving with a license suspended in the third degree. And so you didn't pay fines. And so, okay, now it's a crime that prosecutors have to prosecute and for which you can be jailed. 
um, do we really want to be spending our resources there? And it turns out that many prosecutors don't want to be spending their resources there. And then we've also identified that that actually is one of the drivers of race disproportionality in the initial contact. Uh, and so get rid of that. Uh, let's let's move toward that. You know, at the end of the day, I don't know where we're going to be uh, on on everything, and I don't know that we're all gonna, that all of us are going to agree on everything, and that's okay. Uh, because we're an ad hoc independent task force, uh, we have tremendous it's it's power because we're not beholden to anybody. Uh, and what I tell organizations is, um, we love to have you uh, join with us in this work. We want you at the table. But at a certain point in time, if you can't be with us, um, then you're free to leave. It's, that's, that's the way that it is. So uh, I've, I've gone on for a while. I, I wanna be mindful of time. We're, we're nearly to the uh, six o'clock hour. If Garrett, can I just add one quick thing? So when the professor says, you know, those contacts, we recently in Boston, the ACLU pulled some information and, you know, um, Boston has over 20 separate and distinct neighborhoods, even though the rest of the world is just like Boston. It's like, well, where? Hyde Park, Roxbury, Dorchester, you know, Mission Hill, where, where, where? Um, Boston police, like 70% of their stops were of black people. And again, we make up something ridiculous, like, you know, 20% of the overall community, let's say. And then those initial interactions result, as we have seen, right, there are all these like low level contacts with law enforcement where um, we've seen with George Floyd, $20 counterfeit bill. Even if that's true, even in like a place like Texas, it's not a felony. And I'm not saying it's right, but a man lost his life over a $20 counterfeit bill because we have too many interactions with law enforcement that can escalate in an instant for law enforcement, they could lose their life or for others. And what I will say is just, when we look at policing, what I like to push back and say, if West Roxbury, which is an overwhelmingly white community in, Bo in Boston, woke up and all of their police officers were black and they FIO'd, which is stopped, field interrogated and observed, their kids every day on the way to school were questioning them, frisking them, you know, do it. West Roxbury within an hour of that happening would have the mayor on the phone, the governor on the phone, the police commissioner, and it would be stopped instantly. But for whatever reason, there are certain poor, overwhelmingly communities that are communities of color, and we don't have representation. And I'm not saying that black officers are perfect or Asian. I'm not. What I'm saying is what implicit, like, discretion is often used in a positive way for people you identify with. And what I can say about people of color, immigrants that have only been here for one generation or others that have been for many, we have had to assimilate into virtually every one of our interactions. Even though we have Chinatown, even though we have Roxbury, which is not called like black town, but it's basically 90% black people. And that's where I live right now. Um, but I, I work in a system where I'm never the only, I'm often the only woman and woman of color in the leadership positions I have. There are so many people on our police that have had almost zero interactions with the communities that they are there to serve and protect. We must do more about implicit bias. We must 
do more about cultural competency. Um, and it's not just about melanin, it's about the ability to understand. That's where I think a lot of the problems lie with policing because there's no discretion used. And like you said, these disparities where somebody else just gets a, you know, Seamus, go home. You know, I know your mom because we grew up in the same neighborhood or Liam, you know, or somebody else. But it's like, you don't, I don't look like you. I, you don't know who I am. You don't live in my community. And the only thing the media portrays is negative stereotypes about the people that look like me. So therefore you're gonna make these decisions. Right, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great that you have the stats for Boston. Um, I know that Massachusetts, it's, it, it's inconsistent in terms of the data that's collected. And that just came out in the, 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 you know, the good case, Commonwealth versus Edward Long uh, from September 17th. That was a good case. And uh, Evelyn and was another great that. one with the young black 17-year-old kid. But go ahead. Yep, Evelyn and Long. Sure. But I'm going to use that to, to maybe segue into uh, the ways that Alam uh, might uh, participate uh, in some of the racial justice uh, struggles that exist in Massachusetts. Um, you know, D.A. Rollins has, has made very clear that race disproportionality is a very serious problem in, in Massachusetts. The data is there in terms of, uh, you know, Blacks uh, being disproportionately impacted. So the question for Asian American lawyers is, well, so what are you going to do about it? And so Asian American lawyers may be really upset by what happened uh, to Francis uh, Choi, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, and we know that uh, the stereotypes that, that are harbored by, you know, those in power, what we saw with regard to what the prosecutors expressed in those emails, we know that they're expressing them with regard to others. Uh, so it goes back to, we can't just care about ourselves. We have to be there for others. Uh, you know, there were some amicus briefs that were filed in the long case, uh, one way for, uh, affinity law, lawyer groups to participate is by participating in joining as sign-ons. That's a fairly low resource way of doing it. To then think about other coalitions that, that might build out from that. To then connect with the law schools that have specific projects. So as an example, I'm less familiar with some of the things that might be happening at BC, BU, Suffolk, and some of the others. But I know that at Harvard, there's the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute, and they are doing some fantastic work. And so, you know, one of the ways to try to get involved is, is there one specific project there that they're doing that Alam might say, we'd like to be involved in that? You know, because you can't get involved in everything. And, and when you're working with uh, attorneys who are volunteering, you know, you have the limited capacities there. But by getting involved in something, you know, it's, it's, it's the way that, that uh, change happens. You know, it's funny because a, a colleague of mine um, who I direct the center with at, at Seattle U, uh, Professor Lorraine Benai, she was on the team of attorneys uh, that worked to overturn Fred Kormatsu's wartime conviction. You know, they did this in the 1980s. And, you know, she's gotten some questions sometimes from, from audiences and students like, so how do you get involved in a case like that? They want to be involved in a case like that. And it's like, you don't pick like, you know, Korematsu. It's like, that's, you know, you get involved in things and, and that's how you change yourself and that's how you make change. And, you know, you, you can't do it intentionally to try to be part of history. I mean, that, that's not an effective way to, to be an ally. You know, you, you be an ally by, by showing up. Uh, and it's by doing something like that that you develop the trust relationships so that when you're there for others, others will be there for you. 
And that's great. And that was that answered the next question that I had, which is really maybe the most important thing. How can we be allies? And it sounds like, you know, that, that you know, that you offered some great ideas there. Um, I know we're pushing it for time. Um, I, there's, there's only one question that's been posted. And I think it's a really good one from Bethany. So I'm just going to, the paragraph's a little long, so I'm just going to try to paraphrase it. Um, uh, how, how can we best push back uh, against the stereotypes about Black and Asian relationships that we're all inundated in our day, day-to-day work and often majority white institutions systems? Uh, these conversations can get tiring on an individual basis. And I wonder what you suggest for changing structures for the long term. Uh, can I take a shot at that? Absolutely. So thanks. Yeah, so, you know, part of what I was saying is when we look at these conflicts and we look deeper at the underlying structures, we can get beyond, I think, dig below the surface, right, and see what are some of the root causes, you know, that we can address. So for instance, again, with the so-called Black Korean conflict in LA, in, in South Central LA, um, on the one hand, you had, you know, um, some store owners and the defendants saying, well, we need more policing. Why are the police protecting the white neighborhoods, you know, and not the, the Korean Americans? But we know what was happening with police, particularly LAPD under Daryl Gates, more racism, more mass incarceration, three strikes and you're out, all these things that were just contributing to, you know, uh, structural racism and anti-Blackness, right? And when we instead look at the picture and say, well, are there alternatives, right, um, to people having to sell liquor to survive? Are there alternatives uh, to ways that people can have healthy, fresh food in their communities. I'm in Detroit now and all over the country, the urban farm movement has taken off, right? That's now become a multiracial issue that's centered in many cases, although in, in black neighborhoods. But I think a similar thing can happen when we look at, you know, the police brutality cases, when we look at the affirmative action case. When there are individuals that commit injustice, we need to just denounce them, right? We don't, as Viet Nguyen says, we can be a model of apology or we can be a model of justice, right? We don't need to apologize for what Tu Tao did any more than black people need to apologize for Anthony Kung, you know, an African-American being one of the four officers that, that's, uh, uh, that was involved in the killing of George Floyd. Um, but when we look at a case uh, like the, the lawsuit, supposing the name of Asian students, right, against Harvard, um, I mean, this is actually being brought primarily, you know, uh, by a conservative right-wing, you know, uh, white activist named Edward Bloom, right? And I was just looking up the numbers. Harvard has something like 31,000-something students. Uh, less than 6% of them are African-American, right? So let's just look at what are we saying? Like, what is the point that, that African-Americans should only be 4% or 3% or 2%? I mean, if 6% is too much, you know what I'm saying? You know, do we really want to live in, if, if that's injustice in the eyes of some people, including some conservative Asian Americans, that then justice means there should only be two or three percent. I mean, so again, it's, it's partially, again, looking at not fighting over the crumbs, but it's also saying not getting caught up in the rat race, because as the saying goes, even when you win the rat race, you're still a rat, right? Yeah. You know, um, there aren't enough spaces. What we need to do is think about how are we improving education? How are we improving society? For everyone. But going back to Edward Bloom, what's important is, you know, he's known for these anti-affirmative action cases. He's also known for pushing Shelby, right? Like systematically attacking voting rights, right? Um, and he's no ally of Asian Americans, particularly in places like Texas, where the majority of the population is people of color, and yet the majority of the political leaders are overwhelmingly white at the state level at least, right? And, and very conservative on racial justice issues. And so uh, 
if we can see, you know, what's going on uh, where I'm living now in Texas, you know, Harris County, because of the order of the governor, is going to have one <laughs> ballot box, drop box, right? Uh, drop box for, for uh, mail-in ballots, right? This, as people have pointed out, this is a county that's bigger than Rhode Island, uh, which has 41 drop boxes and has five times the population, right? So we see there's a systematic voter suppression effort going on by the same guy <laughs> and the same forces funding these anti-affirmative action campaigns. And Asian Americans, you know, we shouldn't be used to support either of those, but we should definitely be recognizing that uh, uh, we have a common interest in voting rights with all people who care about social justice, and certainly with all communities of color. Can I, Garrett, just add one thing? Absolutely. So, um, you know, with Francis Choi, when you read about those emails, right, and you realize that that prosecutor still has a job, um, and not just a job, but is the first assistant. So I'm the DA. The number two in my office is the first assistant. Who Mine is a survivor of homicide. Wonderful, really brilliant man. The second assistant is who I spoke about, Masai King, who's an African-American man as well. But the fact that, you know, this individual has been able to make racist statements that resulted in a wrongful conviction, and I believe it was something like 17 years that this individual served and is now, thank God, free, but, but that the racist person that did that is now the number two DA in a different DA's office. One of the things we can do is make it clear that, you know, whether we're signing a letter, sending a letter, trying to do something, because I can assure you if it was anyone on this call that made that decision, if, if someone found an email from me that said something like that, I wouldn't be tripping up the ladder to the, you know, C-suite. I would be the rat, right, <laughs> professor, right? So I'd be the person that was, quickly swept out the door. And then making me incredibly happy is the president of the MBLA now for this year, Stesha is on the call. And she said that there's a walk in solidarity for social change that was organized by all the affinity bars where um, they are challenging their attorneys to commit 10 hours of pro bono services to civil rights and social justice initiatives that are offered by and partnered with the affinity bar. So that is one thing what is i'm happy to hear that all the affinity bar presidents are working together to do great points um there's one last question that was posted we can answer it really quickly i want to be very sensitive of time um, from gavin uh, how can the legal profession itself change to support racial diversity and dismantle forms of uh, systemic oppression faced by lawyers law professors and other legal professionals big question but So I used to work at a big law firm um, called Bingham McCutcheon. It's where I met Sarah Kim, who was a great lawyer there. Um, and, you know, what I say to, you know, the people on this call is when I'm in a room and either everyone looks like me, and it's not a support group, right, for like black female prosecutors in the United States, right? So they should all look like me, right? But if I'm in positions of power, whose voice is missing in that room, right? I can't speak for all black people. I can't speak for all women. I can't speak for all women of color. But are we making sure, you know, if the chief, 
I think it's Chief Justice Saylor is now the chief of the um, United States District Court uh, in Massachusetts. If he's having meetings and only Alam is there and Maha, like everyone should have each other's number to say, have you got every affinity, uh, affinity bar here, right? If you are in the private sector, what are you doing to see whether you can either promote, one of my classmates was excellent, um, I know we're looking for laterals. We remained in touch. What can you do yourself? Because sometimes, and I'm not making excuses for people, but you know, whenever people say it's really hard to find qualified, I'm like, stop, stop it. You can find your people really well. What it's hard is you don't have enough black friends or Asian friends, or you're not putting yourself in uncomfortable positions to go different places or speak to Stacia and say, you know, or, or the president of the LGBTQ Bar Association, we're looking for exceptional people, which we know you have. And we'd also like to make sure that we better reflect our clients. Um, we are better when we can, you know, have different viewpoints there. So I think we can all, whether it's in government, private sector or elsewhere, we can open up our Rolodexes and for the young people, that's like your phone, um, to, to pass along the great people we know to say, here are some really great candidates, not just for paying jobs, but for boards, for task forces, for other situations that we think will be helpful. Absolutely. If I can quickly completely agree with that, you know, for panels, for boards, if you can't find those diverse candidates, then you look harder, find other resources, reach out to the affinity groups, completely agree. Um, I wanted to, you know, I think we're out of time here. Thank you guys for staying a little, uh, a little over, but um, thank you so much, all of you guys for being here. An amazing job. So lucky to have you guys. Um, it gave me certainly a lot to think about and hopefully everyone else uh, that was uh, dialed into this panel. So thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for having me. Bye, thanks everyone. for having us. Uh, I really appreciate Alam and uh, Boston Bar Association. This was Good awesome. Good luck with your ongoing work. Professors, I'm going to start cyber stalking you both because I love <laughs> what you said each. Keep up the good work. All Thank right. you. I'll, I'll be following you on Twitter. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. All right. Bye-bye.